Dear Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. We're so thankful that he is resident in our hearts in accordance with the promise of your word, that he is with us always, even unto the end of the age. Father, that he lives with us, shows mercy upon us, brings us to a stronger place of faith. Father, we acknowledge that we are often weak, we often fail, and yet, Lord, you still love us and your mercy is there for us. And Father, you have given us your word to instruct us. And as we read this passage and study it this morning, a passage that is sad in many ways, and yet, as the scripture tells us, it's there for an example to us, that we might understand both your justice and your mercy, your love and your commitment, and yet at the same time the fact that uh, we need to be aware of the wiles of the enemy and of our obligations to prepare ourselves daily for the battle which is before us. We commit this time to you and pray that you will instruct us through your word in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 9 beginning at verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see the nakedness of their father. We'll read the rest of the verses later on, but I want to focus this morning on two specific things, information given in the first two verses there of this passage which you read, and then this, in, this um, account of what happened to Noah. Now, parts of this passage, more a little bit later on than this, have been badly interpreted many times for the purpose of creating a certain situation or validating a certain situation. This is particularly true of verse 25, and we'll focus on that a little bit when we get there. In verses 18 and 19 of the passage we just read, <clears throat> we find a restatement of prior information. Now, you will discover, and you have discovered, as you read through the Scripture, many things are restated. Many things are repeated. We have four Gospels, for example. Four Gospels to tell us the story of the life of Christ. And if you've ever studied them, the Synoptic Gospels, and then added the book of John and, and, and done it chronologically, you realize that the four are needed to get the full picture of what God wanted us to know about His Son in His sojourn here on earth. And so it is as you go through these passages of Scripture in the Old Testament, you'll discover often things are repeated for the purpose of emphasis. 
that we might remember. One of the practices of education, at least historically, has been that we memorize things. There have been modern educators who've tried to get away from that, but you end up kind of going back to it. You can't totally get away from it. It's like I say to the students, how do you know what your name is? Well, you've memorized it, right? <laughs> and, and, and so it is with so much information. Obviously, you don't just memorize a whole pile of stuff for the sake of memorizing a whole pile of stuff. But God repeats things because he knows that sometimes we need to have it come at us many times before it finally sinks in. Here in this particular passage, God is reemphasizing the fact that the human race had a second beginning. The human race began through Adam and Eve, and we're all descended from Adam and Eve. But it's sort of like, you know, it, it, it branched out, then all of a sudden there's this flat line here. It all came to a very sudden end, and there's this little single line, kind of a point of a pyramid, from which the human race again branched out. In this case, of course, through Noah and his wife, his three sons, and the three wives of the three sons. So from eight, as opposed to simply two. But the three sons, of course, had their root in uh, Noah and his wife. And for the purposes of understanding the, the lineage here, the three wives of the three sons are basically not even considered. Not that they weren't important and not there wasn't a genetic contribution. But as far as dis dis discussing the descent, the lineage, they are generally not referred to. And so what we have here is, is an understanding that we're all descended from Noah and his three sons. We are all united. Red or yellow, black or white, purple or green, as we may have today in our society, whatever color. We're all descended from the same stock. We are all related in the genetic sense. And that, of course, to me, totally uh, negates the thinking in some that certain races or branches or ethnic groups or nations are inferior to others. We're all of the same stock. Some of us have been a little more blessed than others, but to treat someone else as if they are inferior is not only not scriptural, it's not genetically accurate either. All of the major group, people groups of the world, all of the people groups, of course, but the scripture will talk about the major people groups. And when we get to the 10th chapter of Genesis, that's a bit of a struggle. Uh, I've been working with that. And, uh, but we're going to focus in, and we're going to see how these people groups developed. And, of course, you cannot say that Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Japheth were the fathers of, you know, the three major races as we call them today, the Caucasoid, the Negroid, and the Mongoloid. But nevertheless, you'll discover that all of those races do come from those three men. But you can't say Japheth is the father of the Caucasoid, and, you know, Shem is the father of the Mongoloid, or some, something like that. Because, obviously, the breakdown into races today is artificial. It's, it's human. I always remember years and years ago, the uh, Life magazine put out a, a book having to do with, uh, I don't remember the topic now, but it showed a little uh, porcelain uh, skin uh, pigment uh, coloration chart. 
And it had all the way from, boy, as white as some of your shirts uh, to oh, almost black. And you could follow each step, almost like a paint chip chart that you go into the paint store, all the way down and you'll discover there's every single pigmentation between that almost transparent white and very, very black color uh, that's represented around the world. So we artificially kind of draw a line here and draw a line there and draw a line somewhere else. So we can't trace that directly back to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Japheth in the sense of saying, this guy fathered this race. But all the races were fathered through those three men, as well as the other minor races like the Capoid and the Australoid and, and various other ones. The fact that Canaan in here is the only grandson mentioned in this particular portion of the passage is uh, interesting and uh, this simply introduces him because he will play a significant role later on. And of course, you and I know how important that role will be throughout the Old Testament narrative. Now, the sad event that is described for us in verses 20 and 21 was recorded for the purpose of our edification. One of the things that makes the Bible unique amongst religious literature is that it paints the whole picture. The Bible doesn't whitewash people. The Bible doesn't put people up as sort of demigods in some way or another. The Bible paints us as we really are. And yet at the same time demonstrates God's mercy. Just totally unique amongst religious literature. Read religious literature sometime if you ever get a chance, you know. Uh, read through parts of the Koran and, and the, the Vedas and, and some of the other writings, and you'll find there's absolutely, without a doubt, no comparison at all in terms of the, not only the quality of the writing and the credibility of the writing, but the honesty of it in depicting people as we really are. Now, Noah, remember, was the only righteous man in the antediluvian world. He was the preacher of righteousness. For all the years that the ark was under construction, he was a witness of God, to God. And when all the animals, remember, paraded on the ark without anybody shepherding them, all of these things were a witness to that world, and, yet Noah, and Noah stood out at the apex of that particular witness. And yet, as we read this passage, we have an illustration that no matter how mightily used of God a person might be, that person can sin tragically. That person can fall very far. Not that that's necessary. Not that we are saying that everybody who, who becomes exalted in the eyes of people as, as a witness of God is going to fall. But it can happen, as it did in the case of Noah. And in his case, there, it, it, even though there are not so words that say this specifically, you can read in between the lines here, it would seem, that what happened was, at least in part, that Noah let down his guard, that he made provision for the flesh, and as a result, catastrophe followed. 
We're going to spend a little bit of time in 1 Corinthians as we uh, look at this passage. And let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As I have said before, as certainly you already know from your own study, having taught completely through the Old Testament, I have discovered that virtually any account you want to study, any book of the Bible you want to study in the Old Testament, you're going to find New Testament direct parallels. You're going to find passages in the New Testament you could lift right out and just plug right into that Old Testament narrative and see how it fits very well in terms of what God is trying to teach, the principles that are there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happen to them. Now, of course, this is referring back to the earlier part of the passage talking about the children of, of Israel in the wilderness under Moses' leadership. But it doesn't really matter what example you use. It's still true of the Noah account. These things happen to them as an example. Now, that doesn't mean that God caused Noah to sin so he might be an example to us. No way. But it tells us that God was not going to whitewash Noah, but was going to bring Noah straight out and say, all right, this is what happens when you don't keep your guard up, when you make provision for the flesh. This is what happens. Noah would be used as an example. And they are written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. And, of course, that passage should immediately bring into your mind, as it did mine, the proverb which says that, what? Pride goes before a fall. The person who is, there almost is nothing worse in this life than spiritual arrogance. You know, arrogance is bad, but spiritual arrogance is even worse. As you've heard so many times, Jesus had his choicest words for the Pharisees, who were very, very proud of their great spiritual capacity and understanding. And this passage here is talking about that. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And this is talking specifically about spiritual matters. Then it goes on to say, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Sometimes we may think that, oh boy, nobody has ever been in the place I'm in. Nobody has ever faced the pressures I've faced. That's not true. They're common to man, are happening around this world today to thousands, probably simultaneously. You and I are not in a unique situation. We are unique individuals. But these matters are common to the human condition. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide a way, the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Sometimes we don't really fully understand this passage, and we just kind of whip it off to somebody. How come you did this? It says right here. That passage presupposes some very important things. When it says he will not allow you to be attempted beyond what you are able, he does not mean what you are able in the flesh to resist. 
because what I am able in the flesh to resist is just about zilch. You know, if the enemy is really there and it's, and it's a lust that's in me. It's what we're able to resist in God's strength. This presupposes that we're walking with the Lord. This presupposes that we're studying God's Word. This presupposes that we're people of prayer. If we're people of prayer, studying God's Word, fellowshipping with the saints, if we're doing these things, then we will find that way to us of escape and God will help us through it. But if we're not praying and we're not studying the Word and we're not fellowshipping with God's people, if we're living a hypocritical life, you and I, are, if we're in that condition, are going to be flat on our face. Because that way to escape is going to be way up here and we're going to be down here without a ladder. We're not going to be able to find that way to escape, not because God hasn't provided it, but because we have not prepared ourselves. I didn't put this on the outline, but you know this passage very well. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, a couple of verses there I'd like to note for a minute. Ephesians chapter 6, I think this is part of what is presupposed in this passage in 1 Corinthians. It presupposes in 6.11 that we put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We can only stand firm against the schemes of the devil if we have the whole armor of God on. If we're walking around exposed, we're going to get hit. And we're not going to get on that way of escape. Instead, we're going to wallow in our sin. And we're going to feel bad about ourselves. We're going to have this sense of guilt. And we're going to have this sense of guilt because what? We're guilty. The whole armor of God is essential. And then verse 18 goes right hand in hand with this. Uh, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times. In the Spirit, with this in view, be on the alert. With all perseverance and petition, for all the saints. This is telling us that we have to be aware, to be alert, to know when temptation is coming along, to know it when we face this situation. This is a temptation. And Satan's going to use it to clobber us because he wants to destroy our witness. He wants us to feel, uh, feel bad about ourselves so that we won't be used of God. So we have to be on the alert, and you'll notice that a key to being on the alert is prayer. Now, we're all familiar with Peter's prayer, right? Help, Lord! Now, that's a very good prayer, and very essential many times. But this presupposes a little bit more than that. It presupposes beyond foxhole praying. It presupposes that we are learning how to pray and to pray for each other. If we're out in the firing line alone, we're going to get zapped. You remember what happened to uh, Uriah the Hittite? Why did he die? He died because he, Joab was ordered to make a fierce attack on the wall, then everybody fall back from Uriah and let him stand alone before the walls. And as such, he would die. If we allow one another to stand alone, that person's going to get hit. We've got to stand shoulder to shoulder in prayer to keep the shields up, 
When the Greeks and the Romans, especially the Greeks, when they marched into battle, they carried these big shields. The Romans did too. And these shields overlapped, <clears throat> like the plates on, on an armadillo. They overlapped one another. So that there was a solid wall of shields against the enemy. No point of penetration. That's what our prayers are for each other. They help that provide that wall of shields. But if there's a hole here and a hole there and a hole somewhere else, the enemy's going to penetrate. We not only need to pray for ourselves, we need to pray for each other. It's, it's vital. It's critical. And you and I are responsible particularly to pray for our leadership. Pray for our pastoral staff on a regular basis. Pray for our national leaders. Right now, council of the Christian Missionary Alliance is in its final day. They have the big missionary rally this afternoon. Well, it's almost time for it there, uh, since it's earlier. It's Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, we need to be in prayer for these matters, these persons, and for one another. If we aren't, we're, we're creating chinks in the armor. So when we look at that particular passage in Corinthians, we must recognize what it presupposes. And we can't just rip it out and say, Oh, Lord, I'm being tempted beyond that I am able. Baloney. He said, that will not be. And if it's beyond what we're able, it's, beyond, it's because we have not done our part. We have not prepared our hearts. We have not prayed. We have not studied. We have not fellowshiped. We have not done what we are required to do. And God will many times just let us wall around in there for a while till we wake up. And so it's going to be with Noah, unfortunately. He's going to find out the hard way. One other verse that I, I think is important here, uh, James 1.14. You know this, this verse. Let me just read it to you quickly. But each one of us is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Scripture tells us God tempts no one. God tests us, but God does not tempt us. God tests us that we might become stronger. He does not tempt us to do evil. When we are tempted, we're tempted in an area of our own lust. And when the temptation succeeds, it's because we have given place to that lust. We have simply decided, oh, I, I want to I pursue this. And we, we've kind of decided within ourselves that it's not important that we resist it or that we have done the necessary homework, so to speak, so that we would resist it when it came along. We all know the experience, I'm sure. So how does this um, fit in with Noah? Well, this event took place probably in the land of Ararat. I don't think Noah and his family had moved very far. What, what for? Where would they go? It was all new to them. There was no Garden of Eden. The world had a measure of hostility to it, no matter where one went at that particular time. So I think as they came down off of the mountain and they, they came into the plains down below, and, and they were living down there, and... You and I know that it takes a while for a vineyard to grow. You don't just throw a grape in the ground and, and six weeks later have a you know, grapevine hanging with grapes, right? Um, vineyards take a while to develop. And so this is years after the flood. 
several years after the flood, that this particular event takes place. Now, this is the very first reference in Scripture to wine. But certainly, it does not mean that wine didn't exist before this time. And I don't think Noah was the first to be drunk on wine. It's hard to believe, as we look at the, go back to the sixth chapter of, of uh, Genesis and, and read the events that are described there and how vile man became that alcohol didn't play a role in that. It's hard to believe that alcohol didn't play a major role in that. I, when I say alcohol, I mean wine. I don't mean alcohol as we know it today because that wasn't invented in those uh, days. But the abuse of, of, of the wine that was available certainly played a major role in the spiritual collapse of the pre-flood world. Now, wine produced by Noah was a product of natural fermentation. He did not augment it in any way. It simply developed on its own as he processed the grapes. Distillation of alcohol didn't happen until the Middle Ages. Distillation of alcohol so that the high-potency beverages that we have today uh, could be uh, developed didn't exist in this world prior to the Middle Ages, and it, it was the Arabs who first developed it. In fact, the word alcohol is from the Arabic. Now, wine ferments naturally because on the skin of the grapes there are yeasts. And when the grape is crushed, the yeast mixes in with the juice. And the yeast begins to produce the breakdown of the sugars in the juice. Now, uh, those of you who are chemists or remember something of your chemistry know that the sugar molecule is a very large, complex molecule. The yeasts break those molecules down and produces complex but more simple molecules of alcohol and usually carbon dioxide uh, is given off in the process. Now yeasts are fungi, right? Funguses. And uh, they, mixing in with the juice, produce within a few days, usually up to a couple of weeks, a fermented uh, beverage at normal temperatures. It takes a couple of weeks for red wine to ferment if your temperature is at least 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Now these biblical wines, particularly of course the wine of Noah's day, was not fortified. They were not fortified. Uh, today we fortify a lot of things, right? <laughs> we fortify our cereal. Uh, fortunately we fortify it with good things like vitamin A and B and C. <clears throat> but but drinks today are fortified by sticking more alcohol in because there's not enough alcohol as it naturally is produced by fermentation. But, of course, Noah couldn't do that, didn't know anything about that. And so the wines that were produced naturally ran somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 7 to 10%, maybe slightly above that, uh, alcohol. It should be noted, though, typically in the uh, biblical accounts that wine was mixed, meaning most cases was watered down with something, usually water, but could also be watered down with honey or spices or something to give it a, an additional flavor. So that, and also to make it go farther, 
and also, of course, uh, to ward off intoxication. And so biblical wines were not even as potent as modern wines. And of course, m some modern wines are specifically fortified, like your sherries and your ports and those things are, are made. So they're, they're one-fifth alcohol, which is enough to uh, get one going pretty quickly. Now, some commentators believe that Noah didn't understand the fiery nature of wine and became intoxica intoxicated accidentally. Now, this is, of course, possible. Uh, from the passage, we cannot say for sure that he knew what he was doing. But it seems highly unlikely. Knowing what we do know about the world as it developed, knowing that the process of fermentation was probably antediluvian, it, uh, you know, what would really make it different after the flood than before the flood? Because temperatures would have been, on the average, actually warmer beforehand. And certainly, yeast had already developed. They didn't evolve or, or just suddenly spring into existence during the flood, certainly. So this, this product was certainly already known. I mean, Noah was 600, over 600 years old. The guy had been around a while. No. And, and, and he, knew, he knew the world before the flood, and he knew what people did and what impacted them. So personally, I really believe he knew the dangers inherent in wine. Sometimes I think in our effort to create saints, we overlook feet of clay. Every one of us in this room has feet of clay. Our pastors have feet of clay. Even Billy Graham has feet of clay. That's why prayer for one another is so important, because everyone can fall. Everyone is capable of being hit at a weak point and in a weak moment and falling. And we've witnessed the leadership, you know, in, in these tele-evangelistic ministries, we've noticed how, how many have fallen. Now, of course, we can say various things about various ones, but regardless, We've got to be prepared personally and praying for each other to ward this kind of failure off, ward off this kind of failure. Now, verse 20 of this passage may imply that Noah had not farmed before. It says, then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. Now, that simply might mean he began farming again after the flood. But there's no implication before that he was a farmer. It could be he had never farmed before. That's possible. Uh, we know that the uh, civilizations that developed in Mesopotamia and Egypt and later on in the Indus Valley and then over in the Yellow River Valley, these civilizations were all based on the fact that agricultural surplus uh, allowed certain segments of the society to be free from actually working the land. And this allowed them to become the priests, the scientists, the, the scribes, whatever, to focus their attention on something else other than growing the, the food to survive on. So certainly the society that existed before the flood, there were those who, who were freed from working the land because of agricultural surplus. And that certainly would have been true before the flood more so than after the flood. Because if you look at all of those first major civilizations, you'll discover every one of them occurs or occurred in a river valley where the water flowed from a 
high precipitation area into a drier, warmer area, and that was where the civilization developed, particularly where the rivers could overflood their banks and redeposit every year new soil to rejuvenate the land and, and allow, in many cases, double cropping. It was there that agricultural surplus developed and civilization developed. And so as we as we look at this situation, no man never farmed before, so he's just practicing, he's, he's just learning. He has to become a farmer because somebody's got to grow the food. Uh, and so part of what he grew was a vineyard. Now, we dare not forget that the enemy has not gone somewhere else. Satan hasn't moved off to Venus or Mars to kind of plot around up there for a while because there's nothing exciting to do on Earth. No, he's here. And he has only eight people to focus on. And his demonic hordes. You just have to understand, we have to understand, that God had to be with them in a special way. Otherwise, they'd have been totally overwhelmed by the enemy. I mean, today, we always have to remember Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is not omniscient. Satan doesn't know all things, and Satan is not everywhere. He's not God. He has not godly characteristics. He can only be one place at one time. He happens to have a lot of helpers, though, and uh, they're not a whole lot better than he. And certainly there are some of them floating around this property today. They go to church on Sunday. They go to church on Sunday to do what they can to disrupt the work of God. And so here they are focusing in on Noah and his seven compatriots here as the new world is, is beginning. And he's trying to corrupt them, and Noah becomes a casualty. Now, why? Was it because he had become complacent? Ah, God has taken us through the great flood and he has now brought us into this new world and we can just relax. Remember what happened to Elijah? We all know what happened to Elijah. Up on Mount Carmel, I mean, was there a more powerful man of God who would defy 450 prophets of Baal and say the things he said there to them? They're really humorous when you think about it if it weren't so tragic. And before the whole nation, proclaim alone that God is true. And then, as you've heard so many sermons, he runs away from one woman. She happened to be Jezebel, you know, the queen. And, and, he, and he has a tremendous problem as he flees into the desert. And so many have made sermons about burnout and, and other things that could very well apply there. And maybe Noah's burned out, I don't know exactly why he should be, and not sure. But anyway, complacency might have been a factor. Certainly distraction. Busy now trying to, to, to farm, to produce, to provide for his family. He's distracted. And he's not focusing on God as he had before as the ark was being built, and he was the only one. Everybody was making jokes about Noah. He had nowhere to go but to God, but now they're gone. What's to fear? So complacency and distraction may have helped him to let his guard down, and he was flattened by the enemy. Alan Ross, 
in uh, a commentary called the Bible Knowledge Commentary has the following comment. Here Noah lay, drunk and naked in his tent. Intoxication and sexual looseness are hallmarks of pagans. Man had not changed at all. With the opportunity to start a new creation, Noah acts like a pagan. Now that could be a little bit harsh, but that's what it looks like. Now, I'd like to read some words of warning here that are found in Proverbs chapter 23. Now, I realize Noah, did, uh, Noah couldn't sit down and read Proverbs 23, but we can. And the story of Noah is here for an example to you and to me. Proverbs 23, beginning at verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of the eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Now, this does not mean mixed as we do today, sticking, you know, souped up more you know, stronger alcoholic things. It means honey, water, spices, whatever else. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent. It stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea, or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. Quick way to get dumped into the sea. They struck me, but I didn't, did not become ill. They beat me, and I didn't even know it. When shall I awake? I will shake another drink. <laughs> the passage at the end tells us that despite all these tragic things which are described here, the person is enslaved to wine. All this is happening, and he'll see, yet he wants to seek another drink. And you and I know how real this is in our society today. Now, what does that have to do with us? It has a lot to do with us. We live in an age of, quote, sophisticated Christians. In many ways, I see that term as simply meaning Christians who have decided to walk as closely to the world as they possibly can. We have noticed, I think, that some who call themselves Christians treat the whole matter of drinking alcoholic beverages in a very cavalier manner. You know, it's no big deal. It's sophisticated, you know, to not worry about it. Nobody wants to be considered a member of the WCTU, right? the Women's Christian Temperance Union, or to be a modern carry nation walking through the, the, the bar smashing the alcohol bottles with their little hatchet, or, or to, to listen to Billy Sunday as he stood up there and, and railed against demon rum. How unsophisticated. However, I think to do the opposite is to play with fire. Alcoholism and drunkenness has reach, have reached 
an epidemic level in our society. And anybody who denies it is a fool. I mean, all you have to do is read the newspaper, the magazines. It's everywhere. It's a plague that's on our society. And, of course, not ours alone. But, but we're a society of wealth. We're a society that has so much. It would seem that those things that benumb the mind and cause us to do things that intelligent people wouldn't do would be things we would avoid because we've got it all. You just leave it to the poor people <coughs> who, who don't have anything in this world and, and, you know, try to numb their mind because life is so difficult. I think even if we feel that as Christians we can partake of alcoholic beverages without any harm, and, and that, of course, may very well be, and that we have every right to because of, quote, our freedom in Christ. We never know what the impact of our example will be on others, especially our children. Children cannot be duped. They see hypocrisy. They know where the bottle is hidden. Hmm. Uh, they know the difference in a particular person's demeanor. They know when we do one thing and say another. I would like for us to read again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul's pretty clear about this whole issue. I mean, it doesn't just have to do with alcohol. It's broader than that. But Paul specifically deals with the issue of whatever might produce a stumbling block for someone. Verse 23, all things are lawful. Now he's not saying it's lawful to drive 95 miles an hour down the freeway when the sign says 55. That's not what he's saying at all. He's, he's saying that those things which are not specifically forbidden in Scripture or by the law of the land are lawful. But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Now notice how important this next verse is. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. How un-American is that passage? I mean, I'm supposed to look out for number one. I mean, if I don't push myself forward, who will do it? If I'm busy looking after my neighbor, he's just going to step on me and take advantage of me. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, Eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone say to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience' sake. I don't mean your conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience. In other words, there's not a thing wrong with eating the meat sacrificed to idols. It doesn't, you know, have some kind of a of, of spirit living in it. It's just a piece of meat. And what are idols? They're nothing. But if that person watching you consume that meat 
feels that you are being, you're denying your faith, then you are not to eat it. If what you do causes another to stumble, Christian or not Christian, notice what it says further on. 30. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink, and whatever or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Can you be drunk to the glory of God? I don't think so. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. In other words, to the believers or the non-believers. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. You and I have to work extra hard in our society because coming at us from every side is the principle that we are to please ourselves above all else. That if we don't look out for ourselves, nobody else is going to. And that we need to please our senses. We are a sensual society, as you well know. And the Scripture tells us exactly the opposite. We're not to be in the business of pleasing our senses, not that, you know, he goes on to say, there's not a thing wrong with it in the sense of doing what is appropriate. It's fine to eat a good food, you know, and, and be happy with it and enjoy it. But if what you're about to do is going to cause a weaker brother or a pagan to fall, to, to believe you're a hypocrite, to, to not walk the way of God, Paul says, what is the purpose of pursuing it? Is it going to hurt you? Or tomorrow, is tomorrow, or on the day after tomorrow, are you going to say, oh, I feel so bad because I didn't get that drink or I didn't eat that piece of steak? Day after tomorrow, it's not going to matter whether you did or not. Three hours later, it won't eat, unless, of course, you get sick from it or something. It's always the moment, right? It's the pleasure of the moment. Deny it, Paul is saying, if in some way you will offend another person. Now, some will say, oh, but some people get offended at everything. Well, we have to understand what is true offense. And even so. Is it that hard of a thing for us? We're not being asked to starve ourselves to death. We're just asked to do what is a clear testimony of what God has done in our lives. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We are responsible to and for each other. And if I do something that offends you, I am responsible. I can't just say, that's their problem. That's a, that's a real catchphrase today, isn't it? That's his problem. That's her problem. In this area, it's our problem. If we're the stumbling block, it's our problem. And I could extend this into other areas very quickly. Huh. And a lot of people's toes would get stepped on very quickly. Take the matter of dress for swimming, for example. Christians, I think, have 
compromised dramatically in this area. Failing to realize that, that people are people whether they're saved or not saved. And that sin is always there crouching at the door. And if we do something that causes another to stumble in their mind or wherever, we are guilty too. Because we have been uh, uh, given an opportunity for the enemy to work through us. And we need to be careful. Not only in drink and, and these things, but in many, many different areas of our lives. That doesn't mean walk around in eggshells. We just use our heads and do what's right and sensible. We tend to throw out many of the old uh, ways of thinking of the 20s or the 90s or something like that as being Victorian or archaic, but there were a lot of principles there that weren't really very far from what we're reading here. Oh, they went overboard in their ways too. But we dare not throw out the baby with the bathwater to coin a new phrase, right? We need to be very, very sensitive of each other and our responsibility to each other in love. And our attitude should never be, my attitude to you and your attitude to me should never be, that's your problem. Because within the household of faith, it's our problem corporately. And we need to work through it. Now, Noah didn't have Proverbs. He couldn't turn to Proverbs 23. He couldn't turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But you and I can. And that's the important point to us today. I believe God treated Noah with the understanding that Noah didn't have available to him what we have available to us. But we dare not downplay Noah's failure because it did give Satan an opportunity to hit the family and to hit it hard. And that's what we see, of course, as we read these verses here. Now, what's interesting is that wine itself is a symbol of corruption because fermentation is a process of decay. Fermentation is not a process of creating something more complex and, and a higher level. It's a process of breaking down to simpler products as sugars break down into alcohol. And, of course, it's a very similar process to leavening which goes on in bread, which is constantly used in Scripture as a symbol of evil. Now, we know in our society that drunkenness and sexual immorality go hand in hand. I'm not saying one can't happen without the other, but they do go hand in hand in our society. So how does that apply to this passage? Why was Noah naked? Was Noah naked because he was doing something immoral after he got drunk? Well, no. Now, many outlandish things have been said here, and if you've read the commentaries, you're going to find some pretty horrid things said here. Jewish and Christian commentators have let their minds go wild, which proves what's in the mind of man often, and trying to interpret what, what happened here. Most common, you'll discover, is that Ham perpetrated a homosexual act upon his father. Now, that's very common in the commentaries. Worse things than that, though, are, are even said to have happened here. But I think the situation is very clear here. Um, why was Noah naked? Well, he was drunk. And, and the sensation of heat that came along with alcohol, he didn't, couldn't turn on the air conditioning, right? 
So he just threw off all his clothes, half not knowing what he's doing, and flopped down into a drunken sleep. And then what followed is clearly stated in verse 22. It simply says, Ham saw the nakedness of his father. He didn't go any further than that. He saw him. We say, oh, big deal. You know? All we have to do is go down to the, you know, the newsstand and pick out a magazine. We'll look at all kinds of people if we want to. I think Satan inspired Ham to go to his father at that particular moment. I don't think they lived right next door to each other. And he went there because he was motivated to go to see his father for whatever reason. And the Hebrew of verse 22 implies he didn't just walk in and say, oh dear, walk out. He stared and gazed at his father. Not necessarily because he had a purient mind at this point towards his father, but because of what it did inside this man, Ham. Again, Alan Ross has these words to say. He was not involved with Noah sexually, for in that case the Hebrew would be translated, he uncovered his father's nakedness. Instead, Noah had already uncovered himself, and Ham saw him that way. To the ancients, however, even seeing one's father naked was a breach of family ethic. The sanctity of the family was destroyed and the strength of the father was made a mockery. Ham apparently stumbled on this accidentally, but went out exultingly and exultingly told his two brothers as if he had triumphed over his father. Think about it for a minute. Ham is probably a hundred years or more old. I mean, it's not just a teenager here. He apparently, though, had a strong streak of rebellion in him. And I think he grated under his father's authority. And I think he was particularly angered by the fact that his father was what we would call today a goody-two-shoes. You know. His father was, was the righteous one, always did what was right in every situation. And now he has found his father making an absolute fool out of himself. How has the mighty fallen? And I think inside him the dam broke. The dam of resentment that he had towards his father, this, this, this pent-up feeling of, of, I don't think there was any much love between him and his father. I think he resented his father and his father's authority and his father's righteousness. I think it was a whole lot like Cain's attitude towards Abel. Very similar, I believe, in this particular situation. And all that was pent up within him, the rebellion and the carnality now just broke forth. Because this symbol of righteousness and holiness is lying there in this condition. I think his, Ham's commitment to God was no more than a commitment of convenience. Same commitment Cain had. Why did Cain go to make a sacrifice? Well, because that was the thing to do. Want to please Father Adam and Mother Eve. I don't think it was a heart thing at all. In fact, it proves to not be a heart thing as you read through the passage. And I think that's true of Ham, too. And, oh dear, let me quote to you a couple of verses. You don't have to turn to it, but you know these passages. In James, uh, not James, uh, 1 John <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 19, we read this. And they went out from us, but they were really not of us. For had they been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not 
of us. In other words, there are people in the broader community of Christ that are not really part of the community of Christ. That is, their lives have not been transformed. Their hearts have not been changed. They're not born-again members of the true family of God. But they, f they move in our midst and they look like it. I mean, when the 11 apostles, the 11 disciples, heard that one of them was going to betray them, they looked around and they said, Is it I? They didn't immediately say, Oh, I know it's this guy Judas over here because he's a crook. They didn't know that at all. They didn't think that at all. They thought Judas was one of their number. And yet all the time, he was never really of them. And he went out because he was not of them. And sometimes within our midst are hams and canes that are Christians of convenience. But when the real test comes, they leave because their real beliefs are made evident. Reminds me of Julian the Apostate, who was raised in a, quote, Christian household and went to Christian school and all this kind of thing and pretended to be a Christian until he became emperor of the empire and then he didn't have to pretend anymore and he became the out-and-out -out pagan he was in his heart and persecuted the Christians and died tragically as a result after ruling only two years. I think Ham simply revealed the reality of what he really was and that there was little love and not only that, almost no respect. Had Ham respected his father, would he have gone out and gleefully said, yo, dad's lying in there drunk, like a drunken fish naked as a jaybird. Would he have done that to his brothers or would he have gone out there and said, quick, quick we got to do something before dad wakes and finds out what he's done to himself. No, it wasn't his attitude at all. But the two brothers rebuked him. Oh, not so much verbally, but by their actions. They didn't say, oh, really, let's go. No. As you read the passage, they refused to even look upon their father, and they went in backwards with a garment to cover him up without ever looking upon their father. This is the Christian attitude. This is the attitude you and I need towards those who fall who are true brothers and sisters in Christ. We should pray for them and not gossip about them. We should not secretly be gleeful because they believed a little differently than we do that they have fallen because that somehow vindicates that we're right and they're wrong. No, we should pray for them and be concerned that they might be restored to their relationship to God and that Satan not have that as an opportunity to damage the kingdom. But somehow the glory of God will show forth even in this tragedy. Next Sunday, we're going to look at what happened when Noah awoke. He wasn't too happy. And then what was said.